Good morning, Bethel. Uh, where does your mind go when you think about the prayers of Jesus? You think about Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer? You think about the high priestly prayer found in John 17? How about the prayer for Peter in Luke 22? Is that the first place you go? Well, it's not where I would have gone either, but <clears throat> that's what we want to look at, and we want to look at how that prayer was answered. Um, and we want to, here's where I'm going. We're going to look briefly at Peter's life as, as a disciple, uh, and Greg read a good, book, good portion of that. And then we're going to look at the book that Peter wrote to Christians, Gentile believers who were suffering, and we're going to see what he has to say to them. And uh, that book was there to strengthen the faith of those folks that were suffering persecution. And you can see that Jesus has prayed for Peter that when you turn, strengthen your brothers, you can see that Peter is strengthening his brothers and even strengthening us now through the book of First Peter. And then as we take a flyover through First Peter, the first four chapters, we're going to land in uh, verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, and uh, we're going to see what he has to say specifically to us. So let's, uh, let's get started. Are you with me? Here we go. Uh, it was Peter that first confessed Jesus as the Christ, right? But Peter's understanding of the messianic mission was so far off that Jesus strictly charged, strictly charged Peter, don't tell anybody about him. <clears throat> then Jesus proceeded to clearly and, and uh, plainly explain how the Christ must suffer and, and be killed and after three days rise again. And what did Peter do? He immediately took Jesus aside and said, no, 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 no. That's not the way it's going to happen. And Jesus then turned to the disciples and rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. Hmm. It was Peter that was witness of the transfiguration of Jesus and all of his glory on that mountain. And what did Peter have to say? Hey, let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And suddenly a cloud um, came down and a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son, uh, listen to him. It's almost as if the cloud was saying, stop talking, listen to Jesus. Um, <clears throat> and because Peter never seemed to be at a loss for words, we have some really good teaching on forgiveness um, because Peter suggested that maybe seven times would be a good number to stop forgiving people. Let's cut it off at seven. Um, we also have some really excellent teaching on um, what it means to follow and be a disciple, what the rewards of being a disciple are, because uh, after talking to a rich young ruler who, who was, went away grieved because uh, he didn't want to sell his property and give to the poor, Peter proclaimed that, hey, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus gave us some really good teaching after that. Uh, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him three times before the rooster crows, and it's Peter that boasted um, that everyone else may fall away, but not me. Um, it was Peter that failed to watch and pray with his troubled and sorrowful friend. Uh, he fell asleep three times. It was Peter, Peter that denied knowing Jesus three times and then went out and wept bitterly. There are plenty more not-so-good examples uh, in Peter's life that demonstrate that Peter doesn't, uh, 
He doesn't seem like he's the best of students, if Jesus is a rabbi. He doesn't seem like he's the best of friends. Um, um, Peter's early life, as recorded in the Gospels, uh, seems to get off to a rocky start, but as Greg said, Peter's the rock on which Jesus says, I'm going to build this church. Well, how is that possible? Um, How is it possible that Peter could be the guy? Well, one thing that happened was that Jesus prayed for Peter. Uh, God hears and answers the prayers of Jesus. Have you ever considered how we know so much about the life of Peter and his failings? Um, He told us. He told a man named John Mark who wrote the account that we're studying, the book of the Gospel of Mark, uh, and all of those failings are included in Mark and other places. Um, They're recorded not so that we can beat up on Peter, but so that we can be encouraged uh, because we're going to fail too. Um, they're, They're recorded for our encouragement. They're recorded to strengthen our faith. Jesus, our King, prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail, and it didn't. Uh, then Peter, just as Jesus prophesied, uh, turned and strengthened his brothers. Uh, and he's still strengthening his brothers uh, with what, both what he did and what he said. And Peter goes on to write a letter called First Peter uh, to believers that are scattered around the region. That's what we would call today, what we would call Turkey. And his, letters, his letter is still strengthening brothers and sisters in the Lord. So... Um, The Bible is filled with uh, indicatives and and imperatives. Uh, Indicatives are the statements of what God has done for us, uh, how he has graciously delivered us, and imperatives are exhortations of how we should live as a result of those indicatives. Uh, Indicatives are what God does, imperatives are what we do. The Ten Commandments are an excellent example of that. Um, God has delivered his people from Egypt. That's the indicative. And how do we live it based on that? Well, we've got 10 commandments to tell us how to live. That's the imperative. See how it works? We see the same pattern here in in, uh, 1 Peter. So if you'll turn in your Bibles, if you're not there already, to 1 Peter 5, uh, verses 6 to 11, we're going to do a quick flyover now, uh, and we're going to see how Peter, who wrote this letter to to encourage first-century believers, that were being harassed and facing hostility for their faith, how his writing uh, is going to encourage us as well. So the first two chapters of uh, uh, 1 Peter are filled with the indicatives. Uh, Peter opens his letter by calling these believers God's chosen people who are exiled throughout the world. Uh, And even though he's writing primarily to Gentiles, he is using Old Testament descriptions Uh, that link these believers to Abraham and Israel. Um, Peter's including non-Jewish believers in the family of Abraham. And like Abraham, we too are exiles being mistreated for our faith and looking for our true home in the the promised land. Uh, Peter affirms our new identity in hopes that we'll see any suffering that we're going through as a way to bear witness to Jesus and focus our hopes Uh, on the return of Jesus uh, as king. So what Peter does here in the first few chapters, first two chapters, is he praises God, who by his great mercy mercy caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It wasn't always that way, was it? 
We were once dead and unresponsive to the things of God, but now God has granted us a salvation that includes an amazing future, uh, a relationship and living in the presence of God for all eternity. We have right standing before our God by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Born-again people have a new family. They have a new identity. Uh, They're God's beloved children, and they have a new hope, hope of a world uh, reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as king. And for people who have this hope, suffering and trials actually is a gift. It's a gift that purifies our love and purifies our faith. It's kind of counterintuitive. It's uh, paradoxical. Our suffering was designed by God to burn away all the false hope of anything else and remove all of the distractions. So our hardships are intended to deepen our faith by making our faith more genuine. This isn't something new. This is what God's been doing all along. And so Peter takes even more Old Testament images and then applies them to Gentile Christians. Um, Like the Jews who left Egypt, he asks us to gird up our loins and leave our former way of life on our way to a new future. We're a holy people, the holy people of God who are journeying through the wilderness. We're the people of the new Exodus who've been redeemed by the blood of of Jesus, who's our ultimate Passover lamb. We're the people of the new covenant who, who have God's word buried in our heart and his word both restores us and renews our minds. We're the temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself. This is who we are, and this is all God's doing. Um, God has been supremely good to us uh, in Christ and his gospel, and this is the greatest indicative of all. In chapter three and chapter four, we'll see Paul say, based on this new identity, uh, things like submission to those in authority, governments, and how we live as a church in, in, in the community and, and, and in our homes, all of these should be guided by our faith and our union with Christ and not dictated by our circumstances. If, J, if Jesus had not patiently endured the persecution of ungodly men, we'd still be lost. But because of his work on our behalf, we've been brought near to the shepherd of our souls. And so, Peter's telling us, don't don't heed that call to seek revenge, but rather bless uh, those who snub you and marginalize you, just as Jesus did. Our suffering offers us an opportunity to show others the generous love of Jesus. Living well as exiles, uh, foreigners, uh, our citizenship is in heaven, living well uh, will produce a vibrant testimony of the love of God to those in authority and within our community. And so now 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11 says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
To him be the dominion and power forever and ever. Can you see how Peter has been restored and strengthened and confirmed and established? Can you see what Jesus' prayer has done for him? Well, Peter is telling us, here's how you need to live. If, if, uh, and the first thing he, he says is, because Jesus is praying for you, humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. Humility is the essential ingredient to live as elect exiles in this far and hostile world. Um, and Jesus is our ultimate example uh, of an exile living in a foreign com- country. How did he live out this I- ingredient of, of uh, humility? Um, <clears throat> Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this, having this mind among yourselves, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not e- count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So where in Peter's life do we see the mighty hand of God humbling and then at the proper time exalting Peter? In our scripture from Luke uh, chapter 22, um, we, see, we heard Peter boast that he would never fall away. And yet that same evening, Peter denied Jesus three times. He failed miserably and wept bitterly. Pride cast Peter down, but Jesus cared for him. And then humbled and restored, Peter quotes Psalm 55, 22, and urges all of us to cast our anxieties on God. The context of Psalm 55 is all of the anxieties that arose in David's heart from the attack and betrayal of false friends during his own son Absalom's rebellion. So Peter is calling for humility in the face of hostile and hostility and betrayal and persecution. Peter's calling Christians to trust God in the worst of circumstances, uh, situations where we may be tempted to react in pride and even strike with a sword, like Peter did in the Garden of Gethsemane. <clears throat> Proud people believe that they know better than God what needs to happen. You saw it in Peter's life when he told Christ, no, no, no. You're not going to die. Proud people tend to think they need to control and become anxious. They need control and become anxious when they're not in control. The heart of pride never confesses, never repents, never asks for forgiveness. Proud people feel they have no need of forgiveness. Humility understands that we didn't make ourselves and we didn't save ourselves. Humility springs from the well of total dependence on the grace of God. Peter's telling us, don't lose perspective on who you are and where your hope lies. Live like everything depends on God because it does. Trust God and don't take matters into your own hands. God will take your burdens when you cast them on him. He may not take your troubles away, but he will sustain you and give you strength to handle them. God's timing is different than ours. Christians can trust the power of the Lord for his, he has a mighty hand, right? Um, And we can trust his faithfulness because our concerns are his concerns. God's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He cares for us, and he's good. 
Humility fills the reservoir of God's grace so we can give grace in every circumstance. Dwight Edwards said it like this, only humble, grace-filled sinners can become grace-dispensing saints. Well, Jesus is praying for you. And Peter says, because of this, we need to resist the devil. Satan is the poster child for pride. He epitomizes the heart that never confesses, never repents, and never asks for forgiveness. Peter calls Satan our adversary, and this has a legal connotation. It reflects the picture of Satan in Job chapter 1 as the accuser of the saints before the throne of God's justice. Satan is out to discredit God's word and destroy God's works, and Satan is the master of subtlety. Um, He has a way of twisting God's words and using them to tempt believers to to distrust God and then hoping they will choose sin over holiness. And then if they do, then he accuses all those who who sin, he accuses them before the throne of justice, God's justice. And so Peter's imperative here is to be sober-minded and be watchful, resisting the devil. Can you see how this is taken from that episode that took place in the garden? Um, Here's the good news, though. Satan may be our adversary, but he's defeated. 1 John 3, 8 tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And we saw in our study of Mark chapter 1, Jesus being driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to enter the strong man's house and bind him. The plundering of the strong man's house takes place just a few verses later when Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. Later, with the cross in view, we hear Jesus declare his triumph over Satan. In John 12, 31, Jesus says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And then he goes on to say in Luke chapter 10, um, verses 18, uh, 10, 18, uh, uh, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Jesus sees Satan as a defeated and fallen foe, and we may see him that way too as well. Satan has been cast down from heaven, and he knows his time is short, and so his fury against the Lord and his kingdom is intense. Satan may, be, may try to threaten our church from within by uh, masquerading as an angel of light, or he may rage against us from without by using the fire and sword of persecuting tyrants. Uh, The danger to the church and to the Christian is not that we're helpless. No, the Lord has provided the whole armor of God. The shield of faith will extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Um, The danger to the Christian and to the church is that we fail to resist like Peter and fail to not watch and pray. We fail to watch and pray like Peter, uh, that we fail to put on the whole armor of God and take up the sword of his spirit. The sword, the word of God, was the weapon that Jesus used to defeat, defeat, defeat Satan in the wilderness, and it's ours to use in his name. <clears throat> Peter calls on us to do what he failed to do in the garden, <clears throat> to watch and pray. Satan may roar, but he's tethered. He can't tempt us beyond what we can endure. God won't permit it. In 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says this, no temptation has overtaken you that's co- that is not common to man. And God is faithful and he will not let you be t- tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may, able, may be able to endure. 
Satan may prowl like a lion, but Jesus is the lion. <clears throat> Peter also reminds us, reminds his hearers that though our, brother, uh, our, our brothers throughout the world are experiencing the same kind of suffering, and this type of testing is not meant to destroy our faith, it's meant to purify our faith. This Lord who prayed for Peter also prays for us. To, the, to resist the devil, we must pray and humbly draw near to God. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The hope that will sustain us through the fiery trial of suffering is hope in the sovereign grace of God. It's a grace that enables, uh, grace is the enabling gift and power of God to resist sin. It's, the, it's, the, it's grace that will uh, restore and put, what, uh, put right what is wrong. It's grace that will establish us, fix us, and, and keep us firm in our faith. It's grace that predicted the failure and, the, and promised restoration uh, when you've turned again, strengthen me, of Peter. It's grace that will strengthen us and remove our, any fear of Satan. It's grace that moves us, from doxo- moves us to doxology and worship. Verse 11, to him be dominion uh, forever and ever. Peter may not have started out well, but the Lord prayed for Peter, and God heard and answered his prayer. Peter humbled uh, turned and strengthened his brothers. Look how far he's come. Uh, see how the prayer of Jesus has been answered in his life. Once he was boasting, and now he's calling us to humility. Once he was able to, unable to watch and pray, and now he's calling us to be sober-minded and watchful. And Peter can say with great confidence that the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Do you find it hard to live for Christ? Do you find it hard to be a disciple? Be encouraged. Jesus prays for you too. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus to the throne in heaven has him on the throne praying for you now. And God hears and will answer his prayers for you. Um, Jesus prays for you and James 5.16 says this, the prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's no one more righteous than Jesus. His prayer for you will be answered. Bethel, by his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's granted us a salvation that includes an amazing future, living in the presence of God for all eternity. We have right standing before God by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We have a new family, a new identity as God's beloved children, and a new hope of a world uh, reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as king. So Bethel family, close your, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud because grace to the humble. Be sober-minded and watchful, resisting the devil, firm in your faith, putting on the whole armor of God. And if you are suffering today, know that you're not alone. His promise is for you. After you suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who's called you, called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, we're so thankful that you're here. The greatest gift that we can offer you today is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the gospel of this good news is simply this. We're all sinners. We've all sinned and rebelled against God. <clears throat> we all, and all, all of us, because of our sin and rebellion, are estranged from God and deserve his good and righteous judgment. Uh, yet despite all of our sin and rebellion, God still desires a relationship with us. Jesus, who never sinned, took the judgment of God on the cross for all those who repent of their sin and trust him for their salvation. Today, God is inviting all people into a, new, into a new family centered around Jesus. God's word assures us that if you turn towards Jesus, you'll find life in him and you'll be reconciled to God. So confess your sin, repent of your rebellion, place your trust in him for your salvation and be reconciled. If you'd like to know more about what it means to be reconciled to God through his son Jesus, there's members, as Greg said, all around you that would be more than happy to answer your questions, and I'll be up here after the service uh, if you'd like to speak with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sending your son Jesus to show us what true humility looks like. Give us the grace to follow his example. Make Bethel a community that loves others by doing acts of kindness for others. Open our eyes to the blind spots in our lives and help us to root out any traces of pride. And when we face temptation, grant us the strength to resist evil. And thank you that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost forever since he always lives to make intercession for us. Thank you for the promise that our suffering is only for a season and when ended, your son will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Father, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen.